This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm going to start because it's so rainy that we may want to leave a couple minutes early. And thank you for coming out in the rain. So my name is Monica Gandhi and we've met on the first day and then um, and I've been here uh, but this is specifically going to talk about something we're going to talk about something that I uh, do a lot of uh, specifically which is work on HIV infection in women and I'm very excited about this whole session because then we're going to transition to reproduction and conception or not and then the products of conception which would in some cases be babies so we're going to make this uh, transition um, throughout this this course tonight so thank you for being here, and then remember tomorrow, um, next week is hepatitis C um, and HIV treatment. So you have all seen this slide now every single course, um, and and so to just to remind you of the pandemic and how many people we have infected, 34.2 million. But then the next slide, uh, which I think I may have even showed the first day, is to remind us that you know at this point the pandemic is... 50% women, 50% men, and that's as represented by the dark purple line. And really, if you want to look at the areas that are hardest hit, um, which are areas in sub-Saharan Africa, it's really an epidemic which is 60-40 or 57-43. Um, uh, so, um, so really is an epidemic that's occurring more in women. And at least, and, and some people can call this an exaggeration, but, but this was at least struck notice in people who... Um, Think about HIV and women, which was this was not a report on HIV and women. This is a report on women and health put about put out by the World Health Organization now more than three years ago that stated that the globally the leading cause of death and disease among women of reproductive age between the ages of 15 and 44 is HIV AIDS. And I mean that makes sense. People shouldn't be dying um, between the, in these young ages, but they shouldn't be dying of HIV either. So what about turning our mind to the U.S., and what about the epidemiology of HIV infection um, in men and women in the U.S.? So in 1985, it was fair to say that at least by surveillance here in this country that looked at AIDS and not HIV cases, that this was a disease that affected mostly men. So it was about um, 7% at the most women um, in 1985. And then the levels went up and up and up and have sort of plateaued, though that may, uh, may or may not reflect reality, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but it, we're at about 26% of all HIV cases in this country being in women, and then the remainder in men. And the, uh, the epidemic, and when we go to talk about risk factors and treatment and how people are doing, um, this fact is important. The epidemic of HIV infection in women in this country looks very different than the general demographic of women in this country. So if you look at the female population, 68% um, uh, of the women in this country, females in this country, are white, um, and 14% are Latina, and 12% are African American. But this really shifts um, if you just look specifically in women who have HIV, 64% African American and 18% Latina. So only 16, uh, oh, sorry, 16% uh, Latina, so only 18% of them are white. And this is different in men. I mean, men also is skewed towards racial and ethnic minorities, if you look at proportions. But there's a chunk of the pie um, of men that is, there's more men who are Caucasian, who are HIV infected, and they tend to be MSM, they tend to be um, more middle class, and they tend, they, they really helped um, 
unleash the revolution of advocacy that that occurred at the beginning of the epidemic, but that didn't always um, have implications, not always for women. Um, when I meant what I meant to say when I was saying that it's 26% in women and 74% in men, well, that really depends on if we're testing uh, women and if women identify themselves at risk and they're being tested. And and it doesn't. I don't. It's not totally clear that that reflects absolute surveillance numbers in this country. So this was a study um, that was just recently published. Um, but talked about a lot last year, at least among people who um, talk about HIV and women, where uh, this group recruited at-risk women from geographic hotspots around the country. I'm going to talk about what those are um, in the next couple slides, and and performed actually HIV testing to look at um, in these among these women in these in these geographic hotspots, mostly the south and southeast. Um, what was the incidence of HIV infection? And and Diane Havler, I think, went over that. That's really where the recent. Um, new infections in this population. And the HIV incidence was um, shockingly high among black women. It was 0.24%, which is 2.4 in 1,000. But the CDC's estimate in that same population, black women in these regions, um, is 5 in 10,000. So it really is five times higher than what surveillance is looking at right now. And um, and these rates of, of incidence are really comparable to adult incidence rates in the areas that I, were telling you about, I was telling you about in the world that is hardest hit. So I think it is an underdiagnosed problem, and we'll talk about this a little more with women. What I meant by geographic hotspots is that um, if you take a map in the United States of poverty, which all the uh, reddish areas are poverty and the blue is less poor and then the white, either we don't have data, um, you can really superimpose that on a map of HIV infection in women. So this is the CDC surveillance uh, of HIV infections in women, and the darker areas are um, women HIV infection rates in, in, uh, that are high in women, and it really just maps right on top of this poverty map. So HIV in women clusters with poverty. It clusters with interpersonal violence. It clusters with rates of incarceration in men. It clusters with uh, other problems um, like low self-esteem and substance abuse and mental illness. And um, that plays into both prevention and treatment uh, problems um, uh, in the epidemic in women. So this is a question that I'll just have you raise your hand. We haven't had a lot of these questions for the audience, but um, it's been kind of didactic. So I wanted to see what you thought about what percentage of the HIV population in this country, and we talked about this a little bit um, last course, but in the U.S. is not aware of their HIV infection. So just raise your hand. Is it 10% or is it 20% or is it 25% or is it 30%? Or is it 50%? So this is a very pessimistic audience. So you basically said 30 to 50, which is, um, that's depressing. And luckily, that's not true. So so um, used to be 25%, and we're probably more around like 20%. Now, what you're responding to is we don't even know if that's correct, and especially if we thought about women. But right now, at least the current estimates are that 20% of the people in this country do not know um, that they're HIV infected. But you're right, I think, the people who raise their hands with 30 and 50, because we don't know if there's an undiagnosed rate that's higher in women versus men. Because you actually have to, at some level, identify yourself at risk. We talked about the voice trial um, last week um, with Oliver Bacon. You have to identify yourself somewhat at risk um, to even perhaps come in and get tested, um, let alone someone testing you. So why wouldn't women know their risk? It's a heterosexual epidemic. Um, pri uh, prior to this moment in time, there was a little more skewed towards women getting the H uh, HIV from 
intravenous drug use, but it really is more heterosexual than epidemic. And people don't traditionally think of themselves at risk as much um, uh, with heterosexual sex. Economic disempowerment, access to health care, condom negotiation is all difficult. We've talked about some of this before. 11% of men, maybe this is an underestimate, are, are in concomitant relationships of HIV-infected women, underestimate possibly of bisexual behavior in certain communities of men. Um, one in black, uh, nine black men in this country are incarcerated, and that puts people at risk and then puts people and then their partners at risk when they come out. And then there's still very poor knowledge base, especially in areas that are hardest hit those areas that I showed you, south and southeast, about HIV. And that's not just among the population, but can be among providers. Um, so what do we do for uh, screening routinely, and does this adequately cover it? Well, prior to 2006, it definitely wasn't covering it because it was risk-based testing. That was the idea. So if someone comes in, they say they have a risk factor, that's what makes you test for HIV. That's hard to get if you don't think you're at risk. So then this, these set of guidelines came out seven years ago now to say, well, let's, let's not do risk-based testing. Let's do routine testing at least once. Maybe not a bunch of times, but at least once for anyone who's between the ages of 13 and 64 um, and make sure that happens once. And then if they have risk factors, think about repeat testing. And um, Deb uh, Cohen will talk about the screening in pregnancy. Um, but the problem is that this routine testing and getting this into the ethos of providers is probably most limited where infections cluster in women, and those are those areas that we already showed you the country. So this is hard enough to percolate into providers. It took a long time even for state laws to change, to waive written consent. Um, not all the, the states changed at once. So there was, this was already took a long time even when HIV is thought about more. And if HIV isn't thought about all the time, then, um, then it takes a long time to think about routine testing. So this is why I think this guideline is um, so interesting and intriguing. And this is not even remotely being implemented, but, um, but it... it, it provides a possibility on, under the Affordable Health Care Act. So what this was, was this was a um, report that was commissioned by the Institute of Medicine called Clinical Preventative Services for Women. And what this group of people were commissioned to do is to think about preventative services for women that should be covered under the Affordable Health Care Act in preparation for the Affordable Health Care Act, and this is before the election, um, but but just in case that, that thing went forward. And um, and so they didn't talk about breast cancer. That had been talked about a lot. These were other services that weren't talked about a lot, and some of them were lactation, and um, one that gained all the press was about covering contraception and covering the co-pays for contraception. And that got all the press, but recommendation 5.4 was that every woman who's sexually active in this country should be counseled and screened for HIV on an annual basis, recognizing that women do not know they're at risk, make it a routine part annually of care, and, and that's how we're going to be able to capture more women. And that's exciting, not, a, not even remotely, you know, sort of um, covered by co-pays at this point, but an exciting glimpse into the future. Um, so we've hinted at this. We talked about this last week in prep, but women at risk for HIV acquisition don't appreciate their risk. This is from a really nice article that um, would be in, in your slides. But the HIV epidemic among U.S. women is in many ways hidden from effective dialogue, both among the populations at risk and within the broader scientific community. And beyond the fact that you have to sort of identify yourself at risk to possibly access prevention methods, even prevention methods in the context of a perfect clinical trial where people are doing everything in their power to get you to access that, beyond that, um, 
there are differences between men and women about all these biomedical breakthroughs for prevention that we've been talking about over the last couple of courses. So um, the circumcision that, that Diane Havler talked a lot about last week is great for men, totally, definitely protects men, at least men who have sex with women, a little more unclear with men who have sex with men, but probably depending on the type of sex. Actually, a woman having sex with a circumcised man versus an uncircumcised man, it doesn't make much of a difference for her in terms of rates of acquisition. So that, that isn't, a, you know, there's going to be trickle-down effects, but it's trickle-down. Um, microbicides, which would be this idea that you could take a cream or a gel and put it directly into the vagina or, or for um, anal sex into the rectum but, um, and protect yourself from HIV infection that it could control and stop HIV from entering your body right there and then. That's been um, of great importance to people who think about HIV prevention in women because it allows when condom use can't be negotiated for something surreptitious and something to protect the woman that she can control. But no, there is not yet clearly an effective microbicide. To summarize a lot of data, there's just a lot of conflicting data on it, and we're not rushing to market yet with anything. We talked about pre-exposure prophylaxis um, last week, and that doesn't mean it doesn't work for women. It worked really well in the partner's PrEP trial where women knew they were at risk and they knew their partners were positive, and so they really were motivated to take that um, pill every day. But if you, if you don't think you're at risk, if you're not motivated for other reasons, um, it, it didn't work in large trials in women. Um, and diaphragms actually have been studied earlier, and there, there doesn't seem to be and that's complicated too, but there doesn't seem to be a protect, something that we can at least tell someone that they're 100% protected from diaphragms. So this does work, though, because we talked about this now probably every course. We keep on, um, uh, my brother, who's an HIV researcher, keeps on joking that you have to use the word landmark now in front of this, um, describing this trial, HPTN052, but we talked about this last week. This does work. Treatment as prevention works, and it works just as well in women or men. So if your partner is on HIV, is on HIV treatment, and he is infected and you're a woman, then you still are going to have the advantage of having um, uh, a reduced risk of transmission. Um, And so of the, uh, and we talked about this data last week, but of the 28 linked transmissions, so these were people, remember, who were randomized to early treatment versus treatment at the usual standard CD4 count in different regions of the world. And for those randomized to early treatment, it was really hard for their partners to get HIV infected. There was only one linked transmission, um, and there was 27 people who got HIV um, of their partners who, where the therapy was delayed. And um, of those transmissions, um, you know, they definitely occurred from male to female partners. And there's a lot of pregnancies, by the way, relevant to women in this trial, which we didn't talk about last week, but there was clearly unprotected sex. Um, so I'm going to skip that in the interest of time. So what about treatment and outcomes in women? Um, So, uh, you know, what are the barriers for women in terms of treatment? Well, we already know from from the talk um, from Brad Hare, and we'll learn more about this from George Beatty next week, is that antiretroviral therapy has completely altered the face of this disease. So, you know, this is a very, very typical plot that... Um, around 1995, 96, when these therapies became available, and as the use of them, they, uh, these therapies increased, you keep on seeing this very typical plot. People were dying, and then they stopped dying. And this is on a population level, not on an individual level, and it depends on so many things. But there's the, that you're supposed to go up, because there were a lot of deaths, it peaked, and then it started going down. So that's what everyone's plot in a population level should look like. 
But if you look at um, CDC data, even as of the latest Centers for Disease Control data, and you look at um, men who have sex with men and women, everyone in the male group has that, exactly that pattern. You go up, there was all the deaths in men who have sex with men, unfortunately, and then at least that plummeting that happened after 1996. And that is true of women who are white, um, maybe not all the way down, and of women who are Latina, but black women, African-American women in this country have not experienced that. They do not show that typical curve. They are not, uh, their death rates and morbidity rates are not decreasing and have not decreased at the same levels. And a lot of that is socio-demographics variables that we've been talking about. And, and a lot of it is um, uh, cultural competent care and other things. And it's very complex that we don't actually know all the reasons because even when we try to control for all those reasons, not getting into care or not trusting your provider, it still seems like this is happening. So this is a very disturbing fact. Um, we already talked um, about the cascade last week. Diane Havler talked about this, um, about the fact that for every 100 people living with HIV in this country, only 80 are aware of their infection. So that's that 20% that dropped out. And then if you go down, people drop off from being linked to care and staying in care and getting antiretroviral therapy. And then only 25% right now have the goal of therapy, which is not having a viral load that's detectable in your body. And that's even worse for women. So fewer women overall were prescribed antiretroviral therapy when they got to this point, and then fewer women than men, at least percentage-wise, were suppressed. So um, to reiterate, a lot of these reasons are um, depressing but real, and these structural reasons um, are important, um, and we think about it a lot, and, and, it, and it affects your care. It's a completely different way, I think, of, tr of treating and thinking about HIV-positive women in this country than men. Women are poorer. They have lower education levels. They have lower rates of having health insurance. They have more hunger. They have more competing priorities um, around their family care needs, more depression, more substance abuse, and um, and they present later um, with after being tested for care. Um, uh, one of our colleagues uh, performed this study that, that really um, is something that we probably knew, but that, that there's a lot of trauma uh, among HIV-infected women. So um, over 50% of American women with HIV suffer from intimate partner violence, but that is more than twice the national rate. And having recent... In partner violence is not only associated with not being able to take your meds right and not doing well on the medications, but actually um, from death, uh, with death. So um, this is a factor that's important. Um, so I said all this depressing stuff, but take that, uh, take that away and say, okay, well, what if you try to control for all of that? What if you try to control for maybe harder to get into care or economics or um, maybe the providers aren't treating women the same way as they do men? In general, if people get on therapy, do women do as well as men on therapy? At least can we say that? And these are very large studies um, that over time, from 1987 to 2009, that early on, always it looked like women did worse. But then it really did seem to be it was all these kind of social factors and all these problems. And then there were a lot of studies that women seemed to do as well as men on the therapies. And then recent studies are that as long as people get on these therapies or can access therapies, women actually do better than men on a population level. So um, there's reason for hope, but it's just that we've got to figure out a lot of these structural determinants. But one thing that's important is that every study, and I can say this anecdotally, has shown that women have higher rates of side effects with these HIV medications than men. And this is uh, not important, the details, but anything 
these are a bunch of studies um, that are shown here, and any dot that's to the right of this line shows that women have higher rates of side effects on these antiretroviral medications. And it actually, you could put it all together and sort of explain it all by that women, if they get on these therapies, they do well, they do great, um, but they have more side effects if you think that possibly women have higher drug levels um, of these medications in their bloodstream than men do. And that's probably true. We've seen that again and again. And the the problem is that when you take a 10-day course of antibiotics and that antibiotic was studied in like 12 perfect um, uh, HIV non-infected volunteers, you could take 10 days of something and you can kind of feel miserable because you have high levels, but it's 10 days. Um, but if you're taking a medication every single day for the rest of your life, it is important to know that your drug level may not need to be this high, that we didn't dose it or figure out the dosing um, necessarily for women or for these populations that are really infected. So it, I think it's a real problem, and we're trying to work on this. Um, and then finally, I'm just going to end with... Um, that there's some distrust, and um, fair enough given the history, so there's distrust um, for why women may not enter care or not feel as comfortable with their providers. And that mistrust, I don't need to go over with this audience, um, some of what has happened with African-Americans in this country around the Tuskegee study. Um, Latina women, the, the, the data seems to show that sometimes decisions aren't necessarily made by them, but, but, they, um, but by boyfriends or families. And um, there was just a recent article that no matter what, if your doctor looks like you, you do better, um, and that's important. Um, and so I want to just finally end with the fact that how do women feel about their providers? Um, and this was a very large study that surveyed 700 HIV-positive women um, about how they felt about their HIV um, providers, whether they be nurse practitioners or doctors. And in this study, 43% of the women were black and 29% were Latina. And over half said that their providers never discussed women-specific issues. And for um, people who are not HIV-infected, you go to the doctor and you're always just talking about that women's stuff. So, you know, that's bizarre. And... Um, doesn't make sense, and it doesn't make sense in terms of reproductive health desires, which we're going to talk about next. One-third of women had switched providers due to dissatisfaction, and they felt that their providers weren't listening. And over 75% felt like it was a chronic struggle, whether these availability of these medications or not, um, that, they, that it was hard. Um, so I don't want to actually leave this note um, with you because I think that a lot of these struggles um, can be overcome, and, and I think that the benefit of therapies are still there. And I think the biggest um, example of something wonderful to happen with HIV infection in women is around the reproductive period and what women who have childbearing desires um, can achieve. And that's, uh, that's the next talk. But I did want to introduce my um, very dear friend. So um, Deborah Cohan is, um, we went to medical school together many years ago, and she is an associate professor in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences here at UCSF. Um, and she is also the medical director of BAYPAC, which is the Bay Area Perinatal AIDS Center. And I think she's personally responsible for the fact that we haven't had a single HIV infection in a baby in this city, like, for five years. But maybe I'm wrong. Since 2004. So, and I think she's had her hand on every one of those babies. Um, she is the clinical director of the National HIV Perinatal Hotline and director of the UCSF Fellowship in Reproductive Infectious Diseases. And importantly, she's a member of the panel that we've been talking about that makes a lot of these guidelines for treatment in this country, um, which is the Department of Health and Human Services um, panel. And, and so she can lend that voice of 
I'm sure she says this every time in the meeting. Okay, but what about women? What about women? So um, I don't know if she's the only one, but um, I bet she's the most vocal. Um, so I'm really appreciative that she's here to speak about conception or not in HIV-infected women um, in this year, 2013. So it's great to be here. Thank you all for coming out in the rain. I appreciate that. And thank you for that introduction, Monica. Uh, so I have no financial conflicts of interest. <laughs> you laugh, but actually that is, I think, a really big thing, especially because I'm on the panel that makes decisions about what antiretrovirals we should recommend in the United States. And it's a huge issue because many of the people on the panel, I'm not actually being disrespectful of my colleagues, I really respect them, but many of them do have different conflicts that they you know, proclaim and, and um, gets published. Um, and it's a really big controversy about whether anyone on a national panel should have any conflicts of interest. On the other hand, NIH funding is diminishing, so a lot of people have to get some sort of research support from pharmaceutical industry. So I could talk about that, but that's actually not the title of my talk today. Um, so uh, the, the lens through which I want to talk about this issue of reproduction and HIV is one of reproductive rights. And this is the World Health Organization definition of reproductive rights, the basic right of all couples and individuals to decide freely and responsibly the number, spacing, and timing of their children, and to have the information and means to do so and the right to attain the highest standard of sexual and reproductive health. So I hope as I go through my slides, this will be the lens through which you look. The first thing I want to talk about is stigma. And there is a lot of stigma around HIV-infected women becoming pregnant. This was a survey done in 2008. And it was an email survey just of the general US population done by AMFAR. And they asked, basically, what do you think about women with these various conditions um, having children and getting pregnant. And you can see here that overall 60% thought it was fine for a woman who herself has cancer to have a baby. I don't disagree with that. Um, however, only 14% thought it was okay for a woman with HIV to get pregnant. And you can see that's quite analogous to a woman herself having Down syndrome and a woman herself having schizophrenia. And this stigma is not lost on HIV-infected women, and they really do internalize this societal stigma around getting pregnant. This was the Living Woman, um, Women Living Positive survey that uh, Monica alluded to, and um, this involved 700 HIV-positive women who had been on antiretrovirals for at least three years, so they were engaged in care. And about 60%... I have 59 to 61% because they asked people a little bit differently in the different study sites. At any rate, about 60% believed that they could have children if they received appropriate care. However, about 60% also believed that society strongly urged them to not have children. And I don't think it's because they read that AMFAR survey, right? They, they know what their neighbors are saying or what's in the media. So that being said, what are the fertility desires among those with HIV? If you look just generally at the US population of reproductive age women, about 35% of women in the reproductive age bracket will say that they have a desire for future fertility. They want to have kids in the future. They want to get pregnant specifically, not just adopt, or they specifically want to get pregnant. The best study to look at this issue um, was done a long time ago. It was done in 1996. 
and then there was a reanalysis of the data in 2001. And these were of HIV-infected men or women who had had at least one primary care visit, so they, again, were at least somewhat engaged in care. And in that study, they found that about 30% of HIV-positive women and 30% of HIV-positive men expressed a desire for um, future fertility. So the conclusions of the authors of that paper was that being infected with HIV dampens but does not come close to eliminating individuals' desires and intentions to have children. So that being said, um, certainly unintended pregnancy is a big problem in this country. If you look, again, just general population in the United States, about half of all pregnancies are unintended. Do people know that? Yeah, isn't that shocking? Yeah, at any rate. And, and just as an aside, of those, so 50% of pregnancies in the U.S. are unintended, general U.S. population, half of those, the women end up giving birth or continuing the pregnancy, half of them end in abortion, just to give you a sense. Um, so at any rate, when this has been evaluated in the U.S., of HIV-infected women, populations of HIV-infected women, um, it's been a little hard to get at this issue, in part because I think there's bias in all of these studies. A lot of HIV-infected women, I think, are embarrassed to admit that they wanted to get pregnant. So um, it's, and or um, there may be some issues around forms of contraception. At any rate, there's this study called the WISE study. Monica's very involved. It's a very important study. And what's most important about it is that it not only follows HIV-infected women and has for, when did it get started? 1994, isn't that amazing? But it also follows HIV-negative high-risk women. And so we have a really nice comparative data. At any rate, this was a secondary analysis, and they found that 77% of pregnancies, so these were women, HIV-positive women enrolled in the WISE study who got pregnant, 77% of those women um, became pregnant while they were using contraception. Granted, they may have been using condoms, which we know actually is a pretty terrible form of contraception. I can talk about that later at some point. Um, uh, and or these women may have been hesitant to admit that, in fact, they weren't really using the contraception. That's compared to 60% of the HIV-negative women. There was another study in the U.S. looking specifically at adolescents, and they found, not surprisingly higher, about 83% of those pregnancies were not planned. So what's happening, happening in the epidemiology in the U.S. around um, women with HIV um, not only getting pregnant, but in fact giving birth? And what we've seen um, over the course of this particular study, um, they they came out with their data in 2009, but these are data from 2000 to 2006. And what we see is, and these are all estimates, because not every single person in the, in, in the United States has been tested for HIV, which I'll talk about in a moment. These are estimates, but, it's, but basically you can see the trend that we think that the number of HIV-infected women giving birth has gone up dramatically over actually a relatively short period of time. And thankfully, this has been an amazing public health success, which I'll talk about in a moment. So we, you heard about the treatment cascade, and we also 
um, use a cascade when we talk about perinatal HIV. One thing I just want to mention in terms of terminology, you may hear PMTCT, prevention of mother-to-child transmission, and I hope that you will never use that term. I actually learned this from my patients who said they found that terminology incredibly offensive. It's the only mode of transmission where we kind of blame one person for passing it on to another. Um, So the terminology I use is perinatal HIV, perinatal HIV transmission, prevention of perinatal HIV transmission, just to put that out there. But a lot of people talk about the PMTCT cascade, and this is what they're talking about. So the first piece is primary HIV prevention in women. So that, of course, is the ultimate goal. Then um, for those who are HIV infected, having comprehensive preconception or interconception care, that means uh, ideally optimizing women's health before they become pregnant. Prevention of unintended pregnancies in HIV-positive women. Another component is accessible, affordable, and my favorite, welcoming prenatal care for HIV-infected women. Universal prenatal HIV testing. So certainly plenty of women come into prenatal care knowing that they're HIV-infected, but a large proportion of women find out that they're HIV-infected in the setting of just routine HIV testing. The Center for Disease Control has done an amazing job at uh, helping Uh, U.S. prenatal clinics really ramp up and establish a standard of care, routine prenatal testing. And now, you know, at our own clinic, it used to be when we had reasonably complicated hoops to jump through with a special counselor, and I'm not actually... um, being disrespectful of that model, but it was it didn't work in our clinic to have a special counselor who'd come down and um, do really comprehensive counseling with all of our patients, but they weren't always available because they had to cover the whole hospital. Now that we've routinized it, you know, at the time that we had a special HIV counselor, somewhere between 30 and 50% of pregnant women were tested for HIV. Now that the nurse who does the intake does it, it's 99%. And by the time she delivers, it's 100%. So universal prenatal HIV testing has really been a a cornerstone of this uh, prevention of perinatal transmission in the U.S. We offer antiretroviral treatment and prophylaxis to all HIV-infected women, and, you know, it's not just us prescribing it, but in fact helping them be adherent to their meds. For many of these women, it's, can you imagine you are pregnant, and you may or may not be happy about it, Um, it may or may not be intended, and then you find out that you're HIV infected. And by the way, you don't have that much time to make a decision about starting antiretrovirals. We want to start it, you know, in the next month. Like, let's quickly adjust your diagnosis. Uh, It's really tremendously um, uh, difficult for a lot of women. Um, The other piece is rapid tests for women with an undocumented HIV status in labor. So we try to do routine testing of all women, but there are certainly a a large proportion of women, depending on where you look geographically and which institution, who have no prenatal care and they just show up to labor and delivery. So CDC has also done a beautiful job of uh, disseminating rapid HIV testing on labor and delivery. Talk about a stressful time to find out that you're diagnosed with HIV. It's really horrible. I mean, I'm the one who often is the one to give the diagnosis in that time, and it's really just an atrocious. So obviously, you know, let's ideally we start the the interventions and the cascade up higher, but sometimes that is kind of a a last-minute intervention. And if she's identified in labor, we give her antiretrovirals, and very importantly, we give antiretrovirals to the HIV-exposed newborn, and Ted is going to talk much more about that. I'm sure everyone's chomping at the bit to find out about this baby care situation, but she had no prenatal care. 
she was diagnosed in labor. Um, and then comprehensive services for the mother and the infant. The other piece I just want to mention is that while I'm talking all about prevention tr of transmission, my ultimate goal is taking fabulous comprehensive care of that woman. And what I say to her is I care so much about your baby, but I care so much about you. And in fact, the best way to prevent transmission to your baby is for me to give you excellent care. Because, in fact, by giving you excellent care, a nice side effect is you're not going to pass HIV on to your baby. So this is just showing that uh, kind of where we've been particularly successful in the U.S., universal prenatal HIV testing and, and um, initiation of antiretrovirals, and then also this rapid <coughs> testing on labor and delivery and giving antiretrovirals. So as I mentioned, a public health success. So this red line here looks at trends in transmission, so proportion, uh, basically rates of transmission over time, starting in 1990, going to um, 2003 and beyond. And you can see in an era, this white shows no antiretrovirals. In an era, we had really nothing to offer women except not breastfeeding. Um, the rate of transmission was about 20%. As we started getting more sophisticated and started giving antiretrovirals, monotherapy, initially it was mostly just AZT, or also called zidovudine or ZDV, and then we started giving dual therapy and ultimately heart, highly active antiretroviral therapy, at least three active agents. As we, over time, as our medications got more and more complicated, you can see this beautiful plummet in the risk of transmission. Another way to look at that, and, and the other piece I want to mention is I'm really focusing most of this talk on the U.S. Of course, the burden of HIV, specifically around HIV and pregnancy, is in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, but at any rate, in the United States, it's been a tremendous public health victory. So if we look at the number, the estimated number of, of cases of perinatal HIV transmission, these are new cases of HIV-positive infants. In 1991, it was estimated to be 1,650. As of 2009, 151. And in fact, a good proportion of these 151 were actually born outside of the United States. They were born somewhere in Africa, somewhere in Asia, and their, the family immigrated pretty soon after birth to the U.S. So actually their diagnosis happened in the United States, but the birth happened outside of the United States. Those are data that just came out. They haven't even been published yet um, at, our, at our big HIV research meeting a few weeks ago. So we know how to prevent transmission. And in fact, so doing nothing, the risk is somewhere between 20 and 25%. It goes up to 40% if a woman also breastfeeds. If we have her on antiretrovirals that get started before pregnancy or early in pregnancy in the first trimester and she has an undetectable viral load throughout pregnancy, there's never been a documented case of HIV transmission to a baby. Isn't that amazing? And in fact, if you look just generically at women who have an undetectable viral load by the time of delivery, the risk of transmission is about 0.3 to 0.5%. So when a woman comes to me, the first visit, she's always terrified. You know, what is the risk I'm going to pass HIV on to my baby? I can say, well, if you're undetectable by the time you deliver, your risk is 99.7% that you're not going to transmit. I mean, it's more unsafe, like, crossing the street to come see me in clinic than it is for you to actually pass HIV onto your baby. Do people have a sense of, just guess, what is the risk of having a baby with a birth defect in the U.S.? Just spit out a number. 
10%. Very pessimistic crowd. <laughs> They're like, she wants us to say a high number. Five, yeah, so it's about 2.5%. So that compared to a baby with HIV, I mean, really, the, the babies who are infected in the U.S., it represents a, some missed opportunity. Like, we did something wrong, or the woman wasn't in care. Something went wrong for any baby that's born with HIV in the United States. So the terminology now, it used to be PMTCT. Now it's EMTCT, E being elimination. So, and, and we've been talking about elimination of perinatal HIV transmission in the U.S. for several years now. Now it's one of the goals globally. And the, the goal, you know, if you don't aim high, you're not going to reach your goal, right? So the goal is the elimination of new HIV infections among children by 2015. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. And we, we totally know how to do it. We just need to do it. So I'm going to switch gears now a little bit and talk about zero different couples who want to conceive. And zero different means one partner has HIV and the other doesn't. So you think, how can they possibly get pregnant? Um, I'm going to really focus on the HIV-positive man because that is the trickier scenario, theoretically. If the woman is HIV-infected and the man is HIV-negative, they one way to really eliminate the risk of transmission in the setting of conception is to do kind of good old-fashioned turkey baster technique where he can ejaculate into a cup and they can use a syringe and when she's ovulating she can get pregnant that way. It's a little trickier when the man is positive, which I'm going to talk about. So the first thing I want to talk about related to this is just the epidemiology of heterosexual serodifference. This, I think, is a really underappreciated issue in the United States. So this was the Hicks's study that I mentioned got done in 1996, and what they asked of the positive people who were in the study is what is the HIV status of your sexual partner? And for this sub-study, it looked specifically at HIV-positive men and women who were in um, uh, heterosexual relationships. They said they were in heterosexual relationships or they were married to someone of the opposite sex. And what they found was of the HIV-positive women... 54 of them, 50, I'm sorry, 54% of them said that their male partner was HIV negative. Another 20% said that their, the HIV status was unknown. So somewhere between 50 and 70% of these positive women had HIV negative partners. The same of the HIV positive men. 52% said their partner was HIV negative, and an additional 20% said that it was unknown. So somewhere between 50 and 70%. So this is a real issue, and this is this incredible opportunity for us to actually prevent transmission. Again, as I mentioned, uh, you know, of these people in, in positive people in heterosexual relationships, about 30% of them desired future fertility. So what are the options for safer conception? The issue is that HIV lives in semen. So how can you get someone pregnant if they're HIV infected and, you know, we somehow, assuming they don't want adoption or sperm donation, which, or not having children, which obviously we talk to all of our patients about, how can they have a biologically, uh, a biological child? So there are several options which is just amazing that we have these options to offer couples. And I call this the cost continuum. We often talk about cost effectiveness, and it's sometimes assumed, certainly in the safer conception world, that if you pay more, then it must be more effective. Um, But in fact, there are no data to 
um, demonstrate that that's true. So I'm going to just briefly mention these options for safer conception. And in fact, just yesterday, I had a couple come see me in my clinic, and I put this slide up, and we just went through and talked about all the pros and cons and tried to figure out what was best for that couple. So one option, you guys heard about pre-exposure prophylaxis uh, last week. So one option is that the negative woman go on pre-exposure prophylaxis, or PrEP. The medication that's been studied, Truvada, we think is safe in pregnancy, so we think that that's not a risk. Um, so that would be one potential option, that she go on Truvada while they're trying to get pregnant and that they have sex while she's on Truvada. Ideally, they'd have what we call timed intercourse, so they would only, uh, what I call pull the goalie, only not use the condom um, when she's ovulating and, and using some sort of ovulation predictor kit um, and then using PrEP for her to prevent HIV acquisition. On the other end of the spectrum is uh, using a technique called sperm washing. So the principle behind sperm washing, and actually sperm washing is done for any sort of assisted reproduction procedure, like in vitro fertilization, the, the sperm gets washed. Basically, they isolate the sperm away from the other stuff in the semen. So the principle behind that for the purposes of HIV is that semen has three components. It has fluid, it has sperm, the sperm cells, and then it has non-sperm cells like white blood cells. We think HIV can live in the semen and the fluid. It can live in the non-sperm cells like the white blood cells, but we think HIV does not live in sperm. So if you can separate the sperm and then do what you will with it, whether intrauterine insemination, a few hundred dollars, or in vitro fertilization, much more popular in the United States, $15,000, then you could prevent HIV transmission. And in fact, there have been numerous studies. This is done mostly in the US. This is done mostly in Europe. And there have been numerous studies using these techniques for zero different couples. And in fact, there's only been a single transmission occurred in 1990. Um, in that case, they used sperm washing and intrauterine insemination, though the sperm washing technique they used was suboptimal. It would not be considered standard of care. And so that is an option in some couples who are really nervous about doing anything else and feel like they want to go kind of the highest tech option. This is an option for them. So um, that leaves us antiretrovirals for the HIV-positive partner. So th the question comes up, are antiretrovirals enough? And in fact, the couple I saw yesterday, uh, he had been on antiretrovirals for 12 years. He had an undetectable viral load the whole time. They've, this, um, he and his HIV-negative wife, they've been using condoms consistently for eight years. The whole time they've been together, it broke once. She took post-exposure prophylaxis, and I was talking to them about this, and her mind was being blown. I'm like, she was like, this is different than every single thing I was taught in high school and on. And I've been terrified, you know, really to do anything other than have 100% condom use with my husband. So the question is, are antiretrovirals enough? We know, again, the landmark study that now you've heard about four times. Um, a trial of uh, immediate versus delayed initiation of antiretrovirals conferred a 96% reduction in HIV transmission to the negative partner. And in fact, the only case occurred uh, really early on when someone was just starting on antiretrovirals, i.e. before the viral load was undetectable. There's been one documented case of sexual HIV transmission from an HIV-positive man with an undetectable viral load. It was sexual transmission to his male partner 
certainly there may be other cases. And in fact, what we worry about is while someone's plasma viral load or viral load in their blood may be undetectable, they may have what we call genital tract, shed, genital tract shedding of HIV. So they may have detectable virus in their semen, even if they have an undetectable plasma viral load. So certainly this is something I always include in the counseling when I give couples. So we can't say, I would never say there's a 0% risk, but certainly it's exceptionally low. That's typically what I say. And amazingly, no documented cases of sexual transmission an HIV-positive man with an undetectable viral load to his female partner. Never. I'm not saying it has never happened. It's never been documented. Isn't that amazing? Antiretrovirals are just shockingly effective. But, of course, that's dependent on the person taking them. And, you know, for, let's say, an HIV-negative woman, she, you know, how can she be sure that her HIV-positive partner is completely adherent to his meds, that he has an, you know, an undetectable viral load recently. So there are um, certainly potential reasons why a woman may uh, become HIV infected even if her male partner happens to be prescribed treatment. So I want to leave you with this, cl- this quote, and this comes from Augusto Enrico Semprini. He is the Italian infertility specialist who started offering sperm washing with intrauterine insemination back in the 80s. People thought he was crazy for even thinking that these HIV-affected couples should even be thinking about having families and children. So he, his quote, do we have to fill our patients' lives with years or those years with life? Isn't that beautiful? So um, this is a um, We Are Greater Than AIDS campaign poster. And really the, the best thing that we can do is to talk about these issues. And um, talking is greater than silence. And we can help collectively help reduce the stigma that's out there for HIV-affected couples. Dr. Ted Ruel is um, is here in the Pediatric Infectious Disease Department, and he um, has always been devoted to this question of maternal and child health. So, actually, after getting his medical school um, he co- uh, medical degree, he co-founded a nonprofit organization called the International Pediatric Outreach Project, which is now called Global Strategies, that aims to improve maternal and childhood health, primarily through partnerships and training of providers in Africa and India, and then academically speaking, um, he works specifically on HIV infection in children, both treats children in this country and then works on questions of the safest treatment modalities for children worldwide. So thank you so much. Talk to Monica. Children and HIV. Great. So I'm, uh, I'm happy to be here tonight. I have to say, I mean, myself apart, this has got to be one of your best sessions, and it's certainly two, not one, but two tough facts, uh, tough facts for me to follow. Um, but it's really, it's really great to have a chance to talk about kids and HIV. Um, to you all. So I will, tonight, what I would like to go over are, uh, so three basic things. First, I'm going to cover some of the basic epidemiology around uh, pediatric HIV and highlight some important differences from adults. I'm going to talk quickly about kind of challenges more specific to treating HIV-infected children. And then I want to definitely leave time at the end to talk about the, 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 I titled here the prospect for a cure, but review of the case that I think you guys have already expressed interest in. So I'm looking forward to opening that up for discussion and telling you, uh, telling you what I can about the case. 
So to start at the beginning, so HIV um, was characterized in kids around the same time as it was being characterized in adults, and and you've you kind of are certainly already aware, and I've heard from many of the people here at UCSF, which have led you know led led this field from the beginning and continue to do so. Um, but in in pediatrics, they were they were also kind of very closely involved. The the early cases of adults were were seeing kind of unusual immune compromised like infections that had previously only been seen in kids. So pediatric immunologists were working with the adult providers at that time to kind of characterize the disease in its, in its beginnings. And, and the first cases of HIV in infants were also kind of described um, across the U.S., one in San Francisco, as you see here in 82, and then also recognizing uh, blood transfusion as a, as a mechanism for, trans, for, for transmission. Um, so early on, it became clear that, that basically young children and infants were getting it from transfusions, and I should say perinatal tr- transmission. I knew I should have had Deb look at my slide. She's good at keeping me, <laughs> keeping me up to speed with kind of proper terminology. You'll see there's a mix of perinatal and, and mother-to-child transmission throughout the, throughout the talk. So um, the, as, as Deb just highlighted, one of the real great successes in the history of the epidemic has been our ability to prevent transmission at the time of uh, delivery. This slide um, is a little bit busy, but makes a couple, a couple points that will kind of echo what, what Deb just said. You can see, I think actually, I think I have a pointer here. So um, you can see this is a, uh, this, the, 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 the height of the columns on this figure are the rates per 100 of transmission from a, from a mother to a child. The front is the level of virus in her blood, so the, the plasma viral load, you know, here higher than 30,000 down to undetectable here. And then going in this third dimension is the, the regimen that the mother is receiving. So starting with none on the back, um, single therapy with uh, you know, AZTs at Avidine or the, you know, the, first, um, the first medicine we had to treat HIV, um, and then kind of increasing complexity. And the real kind of take-home here is, of course, the back corner is what happens in the worst-case scenario. A mother has a high viral load and receiving no therapy. Um, the infant um, has at least a third, uh, a third of those kids will, will end up with, with HIV infection. But, but really what we aim for now is certainly we can get to the front row here, which is, uh, which is a mother on full therapy. And when you get the mother's virus controlled, you can see you, you basically eliminate transmission. And these cases here, um, this is the viral load at delivery. So, um, you know, these cases here are women that arrive very late in care and maybe just got put on therapy towards the end. But really the, the take-home from this is that we can, we can uh, really dramatically reduce the rate of transmission to infants. And this is, in fact, the same slide which Deb showed, which shows that over the course of time, early, early in the epidemic when we only had a few medications to treat at this point, really only one for, for, for practical purposes, high rates of transmission and high number of cases in the U.S., declining to 151 in 2009, many of which had been um, uh, you know, so-called imported or kids that had, had got it in different countries and were being adopted. Um, and this is, the, this is data from 2010, so a map from the CDC showing 57 cases from the states that reported them of perinatally acquired infections in, uh, in 2010. So a phenomenal success story, 50 kids across, uh, across the country. There it is, especially highlighted. So the, the story is not quite so bright when we, when we turn our attention to older kids. So what I said before is really kids kind of prior to adolescence, less than 13 years of age. Looking now to kids in the 13 to, 20, to 19 age group, so this is the same map, and you see that 2,266 in, in 2010. So clearly not, uh, not, uh, not a good thing, and uh, high, high, high rates... In this, in this young group, and the same, even higher, is true for, say, the next bracket, which is, I don't know if it's still pediatrics, but 19 to 24-year-olds, young adults getting infected. 
Um, so who are these young adults? They are um, mostly men, but, but some women. Um, African Americans are disproportionately represented, as, was, as Monica was showing um, in some of her slides. And likewise, they're from that same part, actually I'll go back, you can see the same part kind of tracking kind of with poverty and with the factors that, that, that Monica pointed out. Um, and the, the primary kind of means by which men, young men are getting it is from male-to-male sexual contact, but also some cases involving uh, injection drug uses and a few cases of, of heterosexual contact. And this basically shows that, again, it's, you know, it's far from being eliminated. Uh, incidence is even rising in some, some sets of the population. So it really is an urgent, an urgent issue for us, to, for us to think about that we can't just you know, pat ourselves on the back for perinatal transmission. We really need to focus on engaging this group. And I think as anyone in this audience who is either remembers being or has a teenage child in their lives, um, this is a hard group to get to do anything. It's a hard group to engage in care. It's a hard group to get to recognize that they're not immortal and they can't just do whatever they want and it's just a really hard group to, get to, 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 to focus our education efforts on and to engage in care. So a real, a real, a real challenge for us um, to, to help, these, help these kids out. Okay, so turning now from the U.S. to the world, uh, the numbers get even a little more dramatic. So again, in the upper left corner, you can see for North America, 4,500. This is pr- probably, estimates really range between 5,000 and 10,000 in the U.S. So uh, overall, these are kids living with HIV under age 15 in 2011. Okay, so five to 10,000 in North America. If you turn to the other big red square, you see Sub-Saharan Africa with 3.1 million. So just dwarfs the U.S. Um, in comparison and frankly dwarfs the rest of the world, any region or really all the other regions combined. It's over 90% of the kids live in Sub-Saharan Africa. So a huge, huge, huge burden of disease. And this now is number of kids being newly infected in 2011. So again, in North America, phenomenal. Less than 100. Again, Europe, great successes. And even around the rest of the world, pretty, pretty good numbers. Southeast Asia still has a concerning number uh, for sure. But again, 300,000 in sub-Saharan Africa. So a big, a big, a big problem. Have we made any, any headway in this, in this problem? We definitely have. And really, again, it's kind of a glass half full, half empty thing. Phenomenal progress over the last five to ten years, but still major, kind of major work to be done. So this slide is um, also from the WHO and, and, and shows the, uh, the rates of, of two things at the same time. So I'll try not to hit my own microphone here. The, um, in the orange is the coverage of prophylaxis for, for, for pregnant women. And you can see that between 2004 and 2010, coverage rose to about 50%. So really, going from zero to 50% in the course of five years in a country with limited, or rather a continent with limited resources, is a phenomenal accomplishment. But, um, but clearly, 50% still to go when this is a 100% preventable disease, as Deb, as Deb had has shown. And again, we're finally seeing the, the curve bend down, which is a wonderful thing, but still way too high and, and unacceptably high. So important work, important work to be done. Okay, so this next slide is a bit of a change of gear. So I basically want to make the point that it is important for many, many reasons to, to, to treat the mothers. Important to treat pregnant women for their own health, um, but also for the health of their infants, HIV infected as well as uninfected. So this is a pretty shocking slide. This is from a time before we um, had antiretrovirals in uh, this portion, in this region of Africa, and before we even had um, septra and other things we give kids to prevent infection with HIV. So this was a large cohort of 10, uh, over 10,000 women that were followed uh, for the course of their disease. Um, and this is the probability of survival on this axis. Um, and then this is a two-year kind of follow-up period of the study. And this is basically kind of two-year mortality data that I'm going to show you. So on the top, you see that 
course for uh, a baby that is born HIV negative to an HIV negative mother. So kind of like the, the, the kind of norm of what it's like. So 3% of those kids will, be, will, will have died by the age of two, which is really, you know, a lot and not great and certainly uh, better than that in the U.S., but really, in a sense, what, you would, what would be the best that you could hope in that setting at that time. The bottom is the more extreme example of an HIV-infected infant without any therapy. And this is, I mean, this is shocking, right? In two years, two-thirds of those kids die. So we can do a lot to this now. You put this kid uh, on septra, you put this kid on therapy, that line goes, goes very high. Um, and this is... And this speaks to the fact that we need to get these kids on therapy and quickly and really points to that one of the big challenges in Africa is not just um, not just kind of you know finding the adults but with this with this kind of rapid chronology which is much faster than in adults you need to find those kids fast and get them on therapy fast before so they don't die um, within the within the first year but another important point from the slide is this yellow line so this is an uninfected infant born to an infected mother and you'd say oh wait well shouldn't that kid just be be normal? And the answer is they're not, and they're not for, for, for a number of reasons. So it's certainly many factors which go into why this number is still three times that of an uninfected kind of situation. Some of that is certainly socioeconomic, like if you have a sick mother, you may have a sick father, you certainly have people that aren't able to get to the hospital or take care of their infants. Some of it's also biologic, like it's just helpful to be um, that we know that kind of like healthy mothers have healthy infants. Healthy mothers pass on antibodies to their infants. Healthy mothers can breastfeed. Healthy mothers um, have bigger infants. I mean, it's just many reasons that we need to get, um, get, uh, get women on therapy, again, for their own right, but really also for the many reasons that will help even their uninfected infants. So, again, if it's not underscored many times over now, we need to get um, women um, and everybody on therapy in Africa to make all those lines go up to the uh, pink line and hopefully higher. So this is, the, um, this is the midway summary. So we can eliminate mother-to-child transmission, and we should. As Deb said, it's not how anymore. It's just kind of if and pushing forward. We just need to get, get, um, get the interventions we know to work to, to people. Um, we really need to, to, to pay attention to young adults, and we can't forget about them. It can't be all focused on, 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 on older men. And these are going to be a really hard group to engage in care, and we need to keep our, our attention on it. And we need to get treatment, again, to the women and children in Africa, putting aside the mother-to-child transmission question um, just for their, own, for their own health. So big take-homes. Okay, so now turning back to kind of more of a practical question uh, of, of starting therapy in, uh, in HIV-infected children. So I think you've kind of, you seem to have already been kind of converted to the, to the new norm of we need to put people on therapy, full stop when you diagnose them. But that's actually really um, only fairly recently a kind of a commonly accepted norm, driven by people that you have heard speak um, and driven by San Francisco, which has kind of led the field pushing that agenda. But it's been a little bit slower uptake in pediatrics, and I'll try to explain, I'll try to explain a little bit why. So part of the dynamic historically has been really kind of trying to find the balance between starting therapy and waiting. And, you know, Certainly early in the epidemic when we had fewer medicines, you didn't want people to take them and have trouble taking them and get resistant because then you didn't really have anything when they got sick. They all had a lot of toxic side effects, so they were unpleasant to take, and they really in many cases led to kind of side effects that were quite significant and, and, and led, to, um, led to hospitalizations and even deaths in some cases. So really were, were hesitant to start until you needed to, and there was, they, you weren't, they weren't sure. They weren't sure that it would really lead to better outcomes if you started earlier or later. They said, well, let's just wait until they get really immune compromised and then we'll give it to them. So that was then. And then now, basically, you know, the pendulum or the balance has all shifted. We have many drugs. There are many fewer side effects. The now umpteenth time you'll hear of treatment as prevention, right? So you give it to some people. You eliminate transmission as well as helping them with their own health. And then there's really a greater appreciation of 
what's what's been called non-AIDS morbidity or non-HIV, excuse me, non-AIDS morbidity mortality, where um, things other than just becoming immune compromised and getting infections are, are happening and we're seeing our understanding are happening to people with HIV. So the inflammation that comes from your body having to fight an infection kind of all the time has other consequences. So it's not just about having your immune system drop and getting a bad pneumonia. It's really about fighting the inflammation that this virus is happening, causing all the time. So now in adults, Start now. Guidelines now you know, are, are, have really kind of pushed pushed to that limit, and the pediatric guidelines. Um, and then I'm I'm actually on that committee, kind of as Deb is on the adults for kids. It's really been a, a kind of a I mean I'll say a spirited discussion because the the balance is is just it's still pushing over there, and some of us really think it should be over there, but it's but the, there there still is a little bit of weight to the to the left side of that pendulum, and I'll, I'll just I'll just put up one slide to kind of make that point. The this is not for you to read all the lines and all the different medicines, um, and it's you know small font and kind of cryptic names. But across the left, you'll see all the the names of different antiretroviral medications, and the kind of like the groups are different classes of medications. And then as you move left to right, um, it's basically the age groups in which you can use these medicines to treat. And you've probably already heard that really to effectively treat HIV, you need to treat with two or three kind of active medicines, usually from at least two different classes, so two different parts of this. Parts of, this, uh, parts of this table. And so you can see that on the top, which are the kind of NRTIs, or the oldest kind of simplest generation medicine, we do pretty well. Like kids can take all the, all the meds that adults can take. But as you go down into the more kind of recent advances and uh, where for adults on the far right you have all these options, the younger you get in kids, you don't, you don't have that option. Um, so in, um, and particularly down when you get to the more kind of more advanced stuff. So it's, 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 it's really a challenge when you have a two-year-old. And if, again, I'll, I'll kind of call out to the, to, the, to the parents out there, getting a two-year-old to take an antibiotic for two weeks is like moving a mountain. Getting a two-year-old to take a bad-tasting medicine twice a day, every day, forever is really hard. And these, a lot of these medicines don't have a lot of durability that you can kind of skip a few days and restart. I mean, they, they get resistant. So it's really a, a hard problem. The, the other point to make is this kind of first column about newborns. Um, and this will come up again when we talk about that pediatric case. But the, the, the pharmacology of, of treating newborns is really challenging. And we, and we were already talking about this tonight, about how challenging it is to find the right dose for medicines and differences in gender and differences in weight. But, but really, when you get down that low, it's not even as simple as adjusting for weight. Because where they were born in their gestation and how many days they've been, they've been alive, rapid changes in the body's physiology with, with how the kidneys handle medicines and how they clear it. So it's really a challenging thing. And really, specific studies for all these drugs need to be done in that group. And you can imagine, I remember my slide of, of in the U.S. with 57 kids um, born in, in, 2000, in 2010. You know, it's, 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 it's hard, frankly, to get funding to do a lot of these studies in the U.S. because there are just so few kids even to, do in, to be in the studies in the first place. So it really has to be driven by people pushing for these to be done for the sake of Africa, frankly. And so that's one of these call your senator, give money to the organization of your choice. But really, we need to keep that agenda pushing forward because unlike the case where adults where we have a lot of people in the U.S that can still speak loudly for, for themselves, we really need to be voices for people in other parts of the world that, that can't to get some of these important, important studies done. Okay, so um, final portion of this talk will be about the, this case. And I realize after putting the slide in, I don't think anybody else has ever called this a Mississippi kid. So don't go, don't go from this session thinking you're kind of up to speed and start talking about the Mississippi kid. But this is a, the, the adult case is known as the Berlin patient, and you will hear about the Berlin patient. But this will be the Mississippi, the Mississippi patient. So 
Before I go into the details, I need to make a, a couple points about HIV biology for you to keep in mind as we talk about how this, how this child was managed. So this, this slide summarizes kind of a basic HIV life cycle. And I don't, I don't, I don't know if you've kind of had something similar earlier in, in your talk, but if so, it'll be kind of useful, useful repetition. So HIV is a virus that has RNA in it, right? So when we check someone's blood for HIV, we're, we're counting how many copies of RNA that it has to get copies of the virus. Um, but it is a retrovirus. So what happens is it does, it binds the cell, and it uses the CD4 receptor, which is why you know, CD4 cells are, are profoundly infected. It fuses with the cell, it dumps the RNA into the cell, and then it has um, reverse transcription. So the RNA becomes DNA, and it actually integrates. Uh, some of it stays in the cell, but some of it also integrates into the host cell's genome. So basically, it, 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 it kind of intercalates and just kind of becomes part of, of that, cell's, that cell's genes. And then it takes advantage of all that cell's machinery to just reproduce itself, to kind of transcribe and make the proteins it needs to, to cover it and to make more and more copies of the virus. And then it squirts out, uh, squirts out virus on the order of hundreds to thousands of copies per cell. So, like, it's a pretty good, it does a pretty good job at, at manufacturing itself. So one, one thing happens in some cases, though, which is it doesn't go to that final step. It doesn't complete that life cycle and just stays sitting there in your DNA. One of the things that needs to happen for these, these cells to kind of begin to kind of make more HIV is they need to kind of get activated and revved up. But some cells, they kind of like get activated enough to get the HIV, but then they just kind of get quiet. They become kind of resting is the, is, is the phrase. And then they just sit there with the DNA. And you can imagine that all of our medicines to treat HIV target different steps in this process, right? So they, they target fusion, they target reverse transcription, they target kind of protein assembly, they target, um, they target all these, uh, uh, so fusion here, uh, as well as an integration into the, integration into the, in, into the DNA. But if a cell's not doing that, the medicines do nothing. The cell's just kind of sitting there, waiting for its chance to come out. And so this has a couple of important consequences. Um, it basically means these resting white blood cells, express CD4, just are kind of hanging out there indefinitely, kind of as long as they would have otherwise lived. Um, we know that different spots of the body have different concentrations of these, and particularly we're finding that the gastrointestinal tract, for, for really interesting kind of not totally clear reasons, has really enriched for, for a lot of these cells, so really high concentrations of these cells. And then we also have these, this kind of problem of pharmacologic reservoirs. So these are places where our antiretroviral medicines don't actually get so well. So you can't clear the infection even if the cell is dividing. And that would include places like the, like the brain. So you know, these, these challenges really for a long time and until the last couple of years were seen as insurmountable. And we didn't talk about cure at all. Um, because we knew that you could treat for many, many years and you would still find DNA in people's cells. And when you stop treatment, kind of weeks to months later, it would just kind of come raging back as if it was their, their, first, in, their first, uh, first infection. And this was true for kids, for kids and adults. So, so what's different? So what happened here with this case? So let's, let's turn to the case. Um, so this was a baby that was born to a mother that, as, as Deb said, hadn't had access to, to prenatal care. Um, and as is kind of current recommendations, she came in, she was in labor, she got a rapid HIV test, um, and, it, and it was positive. But the baby actually came out before they could even do what we normally do, which is, of course, give the mother medicine at that time to, to prevent transmission. So kind of precipitous delivery, then they had this baby that was born to a mother with HIV. They transferred this baby to, uh, to uh, the University of Mississippi Medical Center at about 30 hours of life. So kind of been around for a kind of a whole day and a half and, 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 was, and was transferred. When, they, when the baby got there, they did two tests of the baby's blood. Um, and that's important because um, when we're trying to diagnose HIV in infants, it's important we always, you know, it's a big deal to give a kid a diagnosis of HIV and put them on medicines for the rest of their lives. So we want to do it always from two separate blood draws. And so they did that quickly, but two separate blood samples. 
Um, and then they started three HIV medicines. So those were AZT, 3TC, and nivirapine. So you've probably heard some of these before. AZT is the same. That was our first, first medicine. Um, 3TC and nivirapine. And they started it as prophylaxis, which is to say they started it when they didn't know for sure that this baby was infected. But, I, but, but what we think is probably a key part of this is they used, I say, a treatment dose of nivirapine, but they used a very high dose. Now, truthfully, there is no accepted treatment dose of nivirapine in this age group, but they just kind of extrapolated from an older kid and, and felt like they wanted to be aggressive. And you know, to their credit, it looks like it was a good thing. Um, they, they, they used this high dose, and they put the kid on it right from the beginning. And then once the kid was already on medicine, these tests came back as the baby was, was HIV infected. So they went kind of above and beyond the guidelines and, and pushed for the, given, the risk, uh, given the risk of this kid. And then this is what happened when the kids started on, on therapy. So the, the y-axis now is, again, the level of HIV in the blood. And, and the units aren't important. These are kind of log copies. But basically, it started high and went down low over the first three weeks, and they remained flat here. Now, this is, this is not zero, but not because it is not zero, but because this is the limit of detection of, of the assay. So this is effectively eliminating it from to the extent that it was possible, the, the, the kid's blood. And this is what it looks like generally when you put someone on therapy, an adult or a kid. A little fast, but really kind of the normal kind of what we call decay curve of the virus in the blood. So what happened after this? I mean, right now it's just another kid that has HIV that got started on therapy. Everybody thought this would kind of take the course of, you know, good and early, but would, would probably uh, be like many other kids with, with HIV. So what happened was the mom was, was, uh, was lost to care, basically. Um, like left kind of contact with, with the pediatrician and then returned when the kid had 20, 23 months of age. Of course, that would be the, the baby and not the mom. Um, and then reported at this time that she'd stopped giving medicine to the baby um, five months ago. So a long, a long time. Um, and the, the, they looked into this in the pharmacy records. It looks like that's about the same time she stopped refilling the meds. So they really think that was probably about when she, she stopped giving, giving medicines. Um, and you'll remember what I said, like usually if you stop, it comes back. And we have many cases where we start aggressively in kids and then, um, you know, years go by and people say, you know, do we really know this kid had HIV? You know, let's just stop. They stop and the, and the virus comes back in a few months. But in this case, it didn't. Five months later, the virus never, it never came back. And that was using the standard kind of clinical test that you would do. And subsequently what they did was they did um, – more kind of really aggressive, kind of much higher sensitivity tests of the baby's blood. So looking for the RNA and DNA, and now, now, you, now you all are kind of sophisticated enough to kind of appreciate that difference. The, you know, the RNA would be the kind of active replicating virus in the blood, and they use very, very sensitive measures with a lot of blood to look for even just single copies, and they couldn't find it. And then they looked at DNA using very kind of various techniques to look at it in, in the blood. So this is now looking at the cells and kind of trying to amplify the, the nucleic acid in the cells to find it. They looked in um, uh, lymphocytes with a couple different mechanisms, and then they then they did a, an assay where they actually take cells and they try to kind of like make them produce HIV by stimulating them. The other kind of way to look for what's called functionally kind of competent reservoir, and they didn't find it there. Now they did find. I mean, if you look at the kind of the whole menu of, of things they did, they f did find a few tests that had a few kind of possible fragments. Um, but uh, the question was, were the given that they were doing so many tests, were those do they represent real virus or were they just kind of like non-functional little fragments of the virus? So in a sense, I'd say those represent even more of a grounds for this being a legitimate cure because it implies that the virus really was there and was and, and was cleared. Um, and the most important point is, of course, that this child, at least to date hasn't had the virus come back. And that, I think, is really, of course, the big test for a true, a, a true cure of something. So, so 
it was, it's been five months since it was 23 months, so kind of 28 months, three months. I mean, maybe even a month or two more at this date, but kind of the data goes up to that five months after the, uh, five months after the study. So, um, so I guess I'll just end by kind of this, because I, th- I, I hope we'll have some good kind of questions to drive the next part of this conversation. So the question I think that the, the HIV community is trying to answer is, is kind of what do we call this? Um, is this a cure in the same way that um, if someone with established infection for many years that we could cure? I mean, no, I think this is a very, this is a much more specific circumstance, right? This is when you catch it at the very, very, very beginning. And so some have argued, well, like, oh, that's not, that's not a cure. That's just effective prophylaxis. And I guess I would say that that's not a kind of a, I mean, it's a little bit of a semantic and kind of not so important distinction. The, um, if you think of kind of really anything, um, any, any, any stage of HIV infection, I mean, it's really, even when we're getting um, kind of exposed, it's not that there's just always you have it or you don't. You know, you may be exposed. These people that were in these studies may have a couple cells that got infected, turnover replication a couple times, but the point is it's just not enough to take fire, right? The, the, if they're taking medicines, it can prevent the infection from really laying root and kind of setting, it, setting its course. So, um, so where on that line of the spectrum you say, oh, there they were infected and cured versus there they were just exposed and not, I think it's a little bit of a, a kind of a number game. The bottom line is this is probably as far along as anyone has ever seen it, where, where we had active replication going on in this child to the, to the extent we, 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 can, we can believe it. Um, and um, and it was stopped, but probably before it, it established a latent infection. Of course, everybody right now would love to go back to that time, get more blood, and look to see, you know, if um, you know what cells was it in in the beginning, right? Because in the beginning they, they had DNA and RNA. So why why did none of those cells go kind of resting? As I told you, I mean, these are of course the million dollar questions as to why it worked in this case. And trials are being set up to replicate this and to do similarly and really understand because even. Even insofar as it's, 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 a, it's a difficult strategy to implement kind of worldwide, it'll still teach us a lot about how HIV establishes infection and how we can, how we can avoid some of the important steps. But I think, like, at a minimum, it certainly it kind of adds to this point of, of inspiration that this, along with the adult case that you'll hear, really kind of lend hope when there hasn't been some for a cure for, for HIV. So why, again, just to summarize implications for kids, a lot to gain for kids. I mean, obviously everybody has a lot to gain from being cured, but kids with long lives ahead and large numbers, and as I showed you, a continent of kids have, have certainly good candidates for cure. Um, they, uh, uh, infants, um, as opposed to adults, have this moment of opportunity that we can kind of treat early. So really a good population if a strategy like this were to, were to, were to come about. And I say good immune systems, but a lot of this, you know, this concept is if you have a long period of time where HIV is doing its business and just eroding your immune system, it's the, the kind of reconstituted immune system isn't quite the same when you start therapy. So starting early in kids, they have a lot of capacity for, for, for being healthy in the long run. Um, and then in terms of how to handle this, this case with prophylaxis recommendations, I mean, this is, this is going to be um, a really kind of challenging question um, that Deb and, and Deb and I kind of both uh, with the kind of consultation line um, for, the, for the U.S. are going ha- to have to face. A lot of people are going to say, well, why don't we just put all kids that are exposed on this full regimen just in case, right? I mean, that's what they did here was kind of this full treatment regimen with kind of high doses of everything just because the mom was infected. And the answer is, like, you know, when you have something that you can prevent – 
already 99.7% of the time and you put thousands and thousands and thousands of kids on these really, really high doses of medicine, it's, it's going to have toxic effects and some of which are going to be like have significant consequences. So it can't be that we just change the, re- the recommendations to put all kids on a full treatment dosing of, HI, of HIV medicine early on. Um, and we're going to have to find some way to kind of figure that out. So really high-risk kids, we may, we may, we may be pushing for, for more aggressive therapy, but that's something that I think kind of at a, at a real kind of careful review of the, of the data, decisions are going to have to be made. But certainly the take-home from this is we need to be testing aggressively in kids and we need to be starting therapy as early as possible. And that you know, is not as easy as just saying, well, let's just do the test. I mean, places have to be set up to test quickly. And as I mentioned, we still have work to do on, fi- on figuring out the right doses for these medicines in that, in that age group. Because for really kind of fresh, fresh newborns, particularly kids that are born a little prematurely as often HIV-exposed uh, or, or, or kids born to HIV-infected mothers are, um, you know, again, the pharmacokinetics are even, are even different. So you really need to have really specific dosing guidelines in that, in that age group. So thank you. I think I have to, I have yeah. to cut off now. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.